You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Kyle Harper, who is a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma, and also the author of a bunch of books. Most recently, this one right here called Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. And before that, uh, this is where I learned about you, was this book here called The Fate of Rome, Climate Disease and the End of an Empire. Uh, And then you have this other book from before that even, which is called From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. So welcome, Kyle. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And I'm happy to take a a break from my giant stack of end of semester grading. Well, look, this is an interesting trajectory, right? I mean, you know, you're a classics professor and you write a whole book about disease and plagues and infections, pathogens, parasites, and so forth. And, you know, if I had read this book, I would not have known that you were a professor of classics if I, if it wasn't written on the back of the book. And if I didn't know about your previous work. And so, you know, this migration from a book on essentially sexual morality, right. And the rise of Christianity through to, you know, this book on Rome and then the book on plagues of the earth. I mean, it's an interesting trajectory and it's something that you wouldn't normally think of as something that a classics professor would do. And I remember when I was in school, I was a history major and I took um, a class on ancient history And, you know, we read Plutarch and we read Livy and we read Herodotus and we read all these guys. And I remember like two, three days before the final exam, I was just super, super frustrated because I was like, look, this is great reading about the emperors and their love lives and conquering the Germans and stuff. But what the hell was it really like to to be in Rome? And then I stumbled on this book by Gershenkron, right? You know, the the classic uh, Soviet historian of, of the the Roman empire. And I, and I just couldn't stop reading and I read the whole thing straight through. And I think I remember on the exam, all I did was talk about uh, Gershenkron. Um, and, and so is, I mean, is, is it unusual for a, a classics professor to be so interested in sort of the, the economics and the social structure of antiquity? Well, I guess it depends. I, when I was starting my academic career, fell in love with the the Romans and all things to do with, with Roman history. And I really got interested in Roman economic and social history and, and started kind of as an economic historian. The, the book on sex is, I think, a, a total detour. <laughs> I got, uh, it feels like another lifetime, but it was, it was just a, an idea I had that came out of some work on an earlier project on Roman slavery, which was very important, obviously, to the economy, but also to the society and its moral values. Uh, and so I wrote a book about the history of sex and lived to, to tell about it, but I will never, ever do it again. As long as I live, I can, I can say that confidently. But the other books, I think at least have some common shared interest in what is the material foundation of a, of a human society and whether that's thinking about labor or, or the kind of things we traditionally think of as economic history money, markets, trade, laws and institutions, uh, all that's super interesting. But then I started to get excited because people who study history, including ancient history, are all of a sudden getting bombarded with completely new kinds of information about the human past, in particular, 
information about the the environment and that includes the physical climate we're getting new knowledge about climate change from things like ice cores and tree rings that let us reconstruct the the earth's climate long before there were temperature gauges and governments recording climate indices every day um, we now know a lot about what the the sun was doing and the earth was doing in roman times and to me it's exciting when you learn something new and something that previous generations of historians didn't have any access to or any idea that we would ever know. So from economic history, I easily got, got hooked on environmental history. And so that includes, obviously, as I said, the physical climate, but as well as the living environment. So other living organisms, including little microorganisms that, that we share the planet with and became convinced that this is a, a really important dimension of the human past obviously of the present and future, but also one where it was exciting because we were just learning so much that we didn't know before. Well, I mean, this idea that ancient Rome had within it the seeds of its own destruction, right? I mean, this goes back to, to Gibbons, right? And so part of your narrative and the fate of Rome is, well, yeah, there were these things that were certainly you know exogenous, right? Certain environmental aspects that were exogenous, but a lot of it was about kind of things that happened as a result of the expansion of, of Rome. And, and a lot of this shows up later in the plagues book, right? That it was effectively the same thing that created kind of Roman prosperity also kind of stunted the health of the people who were part of the Roman empire, right? And, and I think you have some wonderful graphics about how like the femur length of people down and, and then, you know, went back up after the, collapse of Rome and, and talk about how the rats, you know, would follow all the Romans wherever they went. So what struck me was that the living conditions of the folks in, in Rome, even among the aristocracy, while they may have been way more prosperous than folks in, in later centuries, they really weren't any healthier. And it was a fairly unhealthy population, right? Exactly. And you you brought up the femurs. So let me let me tell and quick version, the, the story of the bones and why bones are a particular way that we can get at some really big questions about the, the dynamics of human history. And femur length is, is something that archaeologists, bioanthropologists often use because it's the biggest bone. It preserves pretty well. And obviously it is very strongly correlated with your achieved stature. So big people have big femurs, <laughs> short people have short femurs. So the human body is responsive to things that are around it, things that we put into it. The human body changes over time and it can be a crude, but yet really, really powerful way of thinking about changes in, in human health. Just to use the modern example, uh, humans in most of the developed world have gained over two inches in average stature over the last three generations. So if you go back 150 years, it's even a little bit more. And, you know, we all probably kind of know this. Most of us on average are considerably taller than our grandparents and great grandparents. And there are lots of reasons for that. Partly it's because industrial and post-industrial societies are wealthier. And so there's a lot more meat consumption and the amount of protein you eat when you're a kid. There's a huge influence on your, your ultimate height. There is also a, a flip side of that that we don't think about a lot, which is that we also aren't infected uh, as frequently or as violently as human beings in the past, because we live in a modern world where we have a kind of tenuous uh, upper hand over 
the the pathogens that used to just be ubiquitous and constant part of growing up was you would get sick all the time and not just with the the kind of things that you know as a parent of little children now of course drive me crazy little colds and stomach bugs which we still have but people used to get pretty serious diseases and it was only two or three generations ago anybody of a certain age still today who lived before the measles vaccine came online in the mid 50s everybody got measles um and it's not gonna generally kill people in wealthy healthy societies but it's a pretty nasty little bug and it used to just be part of life you just had to had to grapple with the fact that you were going to get measles the more of that so multiply that times 10 or 20 if your whole childhood is fighting off nasty nasty infections your body doesn't have the energy budget to invest in growth so it's not just what you eat protein that's one thing it's also what is eating away your energy like little micro parasites that you're fighting off constantly and then other things social stress the kind of work environment so bones tell a big story and one of the the really paradoxical at first patterns of ancient history is that often the periods of the past that we think of as the most successful the the golden ages are very often associated with people getting shorter people getting smaller and the reason is because in the past in the roman world for instance they did not have even a tenuous upper hand on infectious diseases and so when the population grew it became more urbanized people were living in denser habitats there was more trade so they were more interconnected and density and connectivity play into the the hands so to speak of our microbial enemies and so the romans the phrase that i use for it is they were rich but sick they weren't rich by our standards but by pre-industrial standards they had a pretty successful economy wages on average tend to go up pretty clearly and yet at the same time that doesn't translate into biological well-being because when people come into cities they don't have the medical and public health tools to provision clean environments where they can avoid the the downsides of density which involve being infected with whipworm and hookworm and every diarrhea dysentery and respiratory infection you can think of and so childhood is just uh, not just a struggle for calories and particularly protein, but it's also a struggle against an array of microparasites that is just draining the body. And so you can see the average femur length keeps getting shorter, even as this civilization in many ways has experienced its, its golden age or efflorescence. So I think that's an interesting paradox that actually tells us a lot about the past, helps us see our own situation in a deeper perspective. Well, I mean, you, you talk about if we take the parasites perspective, right? I mean, you'd have to be pretty stupid parasite to target anyone other than humans. I mean, this is like, you know, it's kind of like, I remember when, back when Mac was only 3% of the market, it was like, why would you anybody spend time developing a, you know, a, um, uh, some kind of, you know, infectious worm for the Mac ecosystem when you got this PC ecosystem, which is 33 times bigger, you know, w- we represent, I think it's humans and our livestock represent what, like 95% of the mammalian biomass. I mean, so, you know, target us, particularly after we decided to settle down. And so you mentioned that most of the pathogens are fairly recent, but that doesn't mean that one of the things that I found interesting in the book is I, you know, I bought into this idea that once we moved from hunter gatherer status to settled agriculture, that's when kind of things went South for us. But you point out that being a hunter gatherer is no walk in the park either in terms of infectious diseases. So maybe start at the beginning and, and talk about, 
how did we compare to primates? And, you know, why is it that we so very early on started to become prime candidates for pathogenic and parasitical uh, opportunity? Well, why, why did you rob the bank? Well, because that's where the, <laughs> the money is. That's a parasite's view of the world. So viruses, bacteria, parasitic protozoa, all they're trying to do is evolution. They're just trying to replicate their genes and the ones that do it successfully multiply and reproduce and prosper. And the ones that, that don't fail and go extinct very quickly, it's a pretty ruthless game. And so they need cells and they need energy. And when there's more humans living more closely together and more interconnected, then that makes us more attractive as, as hosts to them. So we probably can't overemphasize the importance of recent human history, population growth, urbanization, globalization in accelerating the evolution of infectious diseases that, that parasitize us. But just as you say, we also need a broader perspective of nature, of animal health, to see that even in our deep, deep past, human beings were afflicted by a, a pretty unusual disease pool. And again, it, it's helpful to think in terms of nature or just animal biology. Chimpanzees globally number a million, two million, and they never have been much more than, than a couple million. And they're kind of, they're kind of in isolated pockets too, right? They're not kind of networked together in the same way that, that even hunter gatherers were, right? Not as much as hunter gatherers. No, exactly. And they're well adapted to a particular kind of environmental range. So they can't decide to go, you know, colonize a, a grassland or a wetland. They're pretty stuck in the, the tropical environment. And so the thing about homo sapiens is that we're not like that. We go everywhere. We colonize every terrestrial ecosystem effectively uh, on the planet. We're trading with each other because you've got metal and I've got seashells or whatever, wine, and we can meet together and swap goods. We're also swapping the germs that, that I got from the seashore and you got from the mining region. So humans, even in the very distant past, um, had already collected a pretty weird, just looking at it in nature's terms, to use a, a scientific term, it's weird how unusual our disease pool for its scope and diversity and the virulence uh, of our many of our pathogens. And I think even hunter-gatherers in the Pleistocene the last ice age, well before the, the invention of farming, had already sort of set the game in motion. They had already started to sedentize, so to even to kind of before agriculture to, to reduce their mobility by focusing on very, very energy-rich environments like coastal wetlands that, that have a lot of food to eat. And their population numbers start to grow. They're, we don't really know, 10 million people alive at the end of the Holocene. So we're already much more numerous than other great apes. And I think we had already started to collect the, the disease pool to, to show for our success. We had a lot of uh, diseases, including some pretty nasty ones. Some of the malaria diseases that, that we have are very deep in the past, but even some of the, the gastroenteric diseases, as we learn more and more about the evolutionary history of our pathogens, um, some of them start to, to look uh, older than we'd really thought, which tells us that 
even in the ice age, humans had started to, to collect a weird pool of parasites. But bringing people together into cities, right? And also kind of moving on to farms where you're surrounded by all these other animals, right? Those are two things that are likely to accelerate the development of different types of pathogens. One, because you're surrounded by all this kind of animal waste and you got all this zoonotic stuff going on. But, but cities seem particularly terrible, right? Because you've got human waste everywhere. And I think one of the fun facts, I don't know how fun it is, <laughs> that I learned from the book is that other primates don't seem to have respiratory diseases, right? I mean, that, that, was, that came as a real surprise to me. And that if they do, if you do see apes with respiratory diseases, they probably got them from people. So, you know, we, we think that we're getting all these things from the animals, but the animals are getting them from us as much as we're getting it from the animals, right? Yeah, exactly. And we can come back and talk about the the importance of domesticating animals in a bit, but the the role of cities is, is simply enormous because what you're doing is you're creating a population that's living in close proximity to each other. And think about that from a, a germ's eye view. Every microparasite has a couple of really basic problems. Their two most basic problems are how do I survive the immune system of a host? Because our immune system is absolutely amazing. I mean, it wins 99.99999% of the time. They're incredible at, at picking out foreign cells or particles and getting rid of them. And so that's a really hard problem. The other really hard problem that every germ has is how do I get from one host to the next? Because if I want to pass on my genes to, to future generations, I can get a few generations inside a host, but I've ultimately got to keep going to the next host or my children's children's children have to go to the next host. So every germ has that problem and it's a big problem. And there's only a few ways to get from, from one host to the next sexual transmission, vector borne transmission, the fecal oral route. So getting from the, the waste matter to the digestive canal of the next host or the respiratory route. And I think this is where we need history because we, of course, humans have a natural tendency to think that the way the world is around us is just the way the world is. But it's often not. It's actually often a, a product of the past, particularly things that we've done. And the, the number of respiratory diseases around us today can mislead us into thinking that that's natural, uh, where there's really nothing natural or normal at all about it. It is very weird that humans have so, so many respiratory infections. And um, our lives are just one of like trudging from, from one cold to the, to the next. Um, and you can never get immunity against all of them, right? We, we all still get the, the cold and influenza because we haven't had that one yet, or there's a new strain. So why is that? And if you forced me, historians like long answers, but if you maybe give a short answer, I'd say cities, because we helped pathogens solve that evolutionary problem of how do I transmit from one host to the next by getting so close together that we're constantly breathing the same air. Uh, and there are respiratory diseases in nature. Um, there are respiratory diseases among animals. Absolutely. Well, well bats, I mean, bats have cities. They're, yeah. Bats have cities. That's right. Bats and rats. And, and so we're never completely unique, but we're distinct and we share a lot of air and we make it really unusually easy to get um, from one host to the next, from the respiratory system of one host to the next. And so we've created an environment by, by building cities, which have, of course, tremendous advantages, right? There's, it's hard to overstate how magical in many ways cities are for sparking human 
creativity and development and innovation and culture from the deep past to the present. But one of the downsides is simply that we have to also grapple with the fact that cities are a dream for respiratory pathogens. And we can now, with increasing clarity, start to, to piece this puzzle together historically. So one of the, the examples that I really like is a disease I've already mentioned, measles. It's a viral disease. It's a very strange disease because it is unbelievably contagious. Uh, it's, it's essentially the most contagious disease we, we know of. If a person who's infected with measles walks into a room with a, a group of unvaccinated people, coughs and leaves the room, they're, they're all going to get measles. It's crazy how, how efficiently it, it transmits. And it's very, very human focused. And so this is one of the differences between human diseases, particularly respiratory diseases and other animals diseases, is that it specializes. Uh, so in evolution, pathogens often have to kind of be jack of all trades. Whereas if they infect humans, they can just get better and better and better at infecting humans and forget how to infect everybody else, which can actually make them better at infecting us because they can get rid of a lot of, you know, they don't have to be Swiss army knives. They can get rid of genes that code proteins that do things that they don't need to do anymore. And often those genes that they don't need anymore will trip the immune system's alarm wire. So they just get better and better and better at hiding and focusing on what they need to do, which is to, to take advantage of us. So measles is like in those ways, just off the charts, very, very focused on humans. You know, your, your, your measles virus can't swap around with, with a bunch of animals and then come back and it, and it just spreads like wildfire. That's actually a terrible evolutionary strategy um, because measles goes extinct immediately unless there's a city. And so measles has a population threshold of around 250,000. If there's not a big city, it won't have enough hosts to keep circulating and it just dies out. This is very well observed. And we now have more and more evidence about the measles virus's genome that tells us when and how it evolved. And it looks like it adapts to humans right around the time humans start building big cities. And so it's this neat story where you can see how the human societies change the environment and this natural organism, a virus, adapts to take advantage of that. But no cities, no, no measles virus. So in a sense, we created the conditions that let it emerge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that there's this sort of very specific set of circumstances that allow these diseases to prevent themselves from going extinct, right? So you need this chain of, of transmission. You, you offered up a couple examples. I forget which disease it was, but it, it took a couple decades to go from the old world to the new world because you, you needed to have enough people on the ship for it to kind of, you know, not burn through the entire population of the ship in the, in the three or four weeks that it took to sail across the Atlantic, right? And, and then you also mentioned that when they wanted to use cowpox for immunization, they had to kind of have enough people, to, you know, traveling to India or whatever that they could pass it on from one, one kid to the next kid to the next kid so that it would arrive alive, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a wild and amazing story and the kind of combination of genius and human ingenuity, I guess, and, and figuring out how to actually vaccinate uh, people in those early days is really an amazing story. Again, where we take for granted really simple things like like modern hypodermic needles. <laughs> but the other, other point you brought up, the Colombian exchange is a fascinating and important one that has really profoundly affected the world, which is when Columbus crosses the, the ocean blue 
you know, it's not just humans sailing across, it's humans bringing conquest, humans bringing enslavement, human bringing crops, like tropical plants, human bringing animals, um, like old world domesticated animals that radically transform new world environments. All of that has become increasingly familiar, but there's also an invisible microbial dimension as well that's really, really important and has an enormous effect on every society around the globe. So new world societies, African societies, European societies, as diseases are now um, exchanged. And it is a very uneven disease exchange in which the, the number of pathogens that are brought from Europe into the new world, and particularly the number of extremely virulent pathogens is much, much higher. And is really part and parcel of the process that unfolds after arrival. But I think the story you tell about the Columbian Exchange is, is a bit more subtle than the one that most people understand, right? So I think that the, the standard story is that you have all these folks with uh, naive immune systems and, uh, and they've never seen this disease before. And so they're not evolutionarily adapted for it. But that's, that's only part of the story, right? And, and in fact, I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask you, right? You know, people say that pathogens are what drives evolution to a large extent, kind of the red queen phenomenon. But a bigger part of the story might be the uh, adaptive immunity story. What happens is you're, you're kind of compressing into a very short period of time exposure to a pathogen that presumably would happen sort of serially in, in, the, in the old world, right? So all the people, all the Europeans that showed up, they had made it through that filter for a lot of these diseases like smallpox as, as infants. And so, you know, the the infection fatality rate might actually, for some of these, be the same in the old world and the new world. It's just that, you know, you're compressing that all down into, you know, one moment. I mean, kind of like we did with COVID, right? So COVID, it was, you know, an entire lifetime of people ages zero to 90 that were effectively being exposed to this within an you know, 18-month period as opposed to being exposed in the first year of life. So you're going to get this huge spike in mortality. So so how much of it is evolutionary preparedness and how much of it is just about kind of compressing all of these things into a very short period? Yeah, well, I mean, you've put it well and you ask it as a question. And I think in many ways, it's actually still an open question. I do think we've, scholars have made a lot of progress over the last generation in first sort of identifying this, this dynamic and saying, wow, Europeans show up and smallpox is a big part of this story. That's still absolutely true. But the kind of, simple version of that that's sometimes called the virgin soil hypothesis that Europeans just appeared with diseases that were unfamiliar and so they spread like wildfire across populations native to the new world who had supposedly no immunity to this it doesn't work that way because just to stick with the example of smallpox exactly as you say it's not like Europeans were immune to, to smallpox it was one of the deadliest diseases from the, the 16th to the 19th century till vaccination. So we know that that story was, was a little bit simplistic and overstated. And yet there's, there's something to it. Um, it does seem to, to be in ways that we don't really understand the inherent immunity, uh, the basis for the differences in clinical outcomes between different, different populations. There's a lot of unknown there and should be a lot of humility about these hypotheses. But clearly, as you say, acquired immunity is is a part of it and so the compression of exposing a population to the onslaught of huge number of diseases in a short span of time and in the context of often 
violence and expropriation that is already destabilizing and not just destabilizing in a kind of political and social way, but also in a deeply, you know, physiological way as well that, that subjects the human body to, to stress from nutritional deprivation or violence that has a huge influence on clinical outcomes. So again, just to, to take the example of measles, like measles is not going to kill a, a healthy two-year-old in a rich country um, with good medical care. The fatality rates of measles infection in the Western world um, before vaccination were minor, 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 way below 1%. Whereas measles, historically, if you've got a population that's under a ton of stress, is a pretty fatal disease. Um, so we can we can import that kind of basic way of thinking to the to the new world context in the particularly the 16th century, where you have societies in conflict that are creating tons of dislocation and stress that affect susceptibility to infection and lead to, to negative clinical outcomes. The other frontier where we're learning a lot that we didn't know or expect to know even 10 years ago comes from the recovery of DNA of pathogens from the bones of people who died of infectious disease. There's still a lot we don't know, but it's, it's starting to, to fill in parts of the picture. And so just to take one really blockbuster example from this field, from one of the major, major pandemics in 16th century Mexico, maybe the, the most deadly of them period in the 1540s, called in the sources Cocolitzli. It's been hypothesized that it's a bunch of different things, including smallpox, which is probably part of the story. But actually in a cemetery, central Mexico, where there were mass burials, there was clearly some kind of crisis, epidemic mortality. What researchers found was the bacterium that, that causes paratyphoid fever. Um, and nobody had ever suspected this was a part of the matrix of, of these catastrophes and pandemics in the 16th century. So it's cool because it's something totally unexpected that paratyphoid fever was one of the infections that Europeans seem to have introduced. But also it's, it's beyond just identifying one of the culprits. It really underscores that it probably isn't just smallpox, which is kind of a big celebrity disease, but it's the, the shotgun approach, you know, the shotgun violence of multiple diseases that are introduced at once instead of just necessarily one big famous disease it's more about health environments and the the collision of societies that render people vulnerable to infection and so that that's suddenly a, a much more interesting and i think much more realistic picture even if there's still a lot that we don't know than just imagining that one or two diseases introduced to, to populations without previous exposure and therefore kind of total immunity that that story created interest in the right questions and like like most big academic areas of research has has yielded a lot of progress that's that's very interesting in the last couple of decades and there's more on the horizon i mean the story of paratyphoid is just the beginning i think as there's more and more archaeological DNA recovered, we're going to also find out new surprises that we just had no idea were coming. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading Plagues and People when it first came out, William McNeil, I don't know, maybe, maybe not when it first came out, but, you know, certainly thereafter, I remember reading it back when I was in graduate school and it just blew me away because it just was this whole new way of thinking about history beyond 
you know, battles and, and kings and all this sort of stuff. But what he didn't have at his disposal are these tools that, that you're talking about, right? You refer to them as tree thinking and, and time travel, right? Like phylogenetics and, and, and paleogenomics. So how are these tools going to kind of upend our understanding? Because there's just so much speculation. I read another book on syphilis and everyone's like, yeah, you know, we, we think Beethoven had syphilis. You know, we think Nietzsche had syphilis, but, you know, nobody really knows, right? So will we now be able to kind of pin down what was driving a lot of these epidemics that show up in the historical record that we've just been able to speculate about? Yes, or maybe yes and no. But it's all about genetics. And so just as every individual human being inside the nucleus of every cell is the DNA, the the unique code that... Uh, makes you you and that programs the instructions to to make every cell in your body. So every pathogen, every bacterium, every protozoan, every virus has a genome uh, made up of DNA or in the case of some viruses, RNA. And the advances in genome sequencing technology in the last 15 years or so have you know, revolutionized the study of genetics because now it's possible to rapidly and cheaply sequence genomes because of uh, new kinds of technologies called high throughput sequencing that can massively in parallel sequence huge, huge numbers of nucleotides. The, the same technology, and this is the same, essentially the same thing that makes possible the commercial ancestry companies where you can send somebody your, your genetic information. Um, and they tell you a kind of story that has some, some loose elements of truth to it. Maybe the, the same basic technologies are revolutionizing the study of history and the, the study of the history of infectious disease, because we're learning about the genomes of bacteria, viruses, et cetera. So the, the genomes can tell us things about the past, about their evolutionary history really in sort of two broad ways, which you mentioned. One is through the creation of family trees, phylogenetics. It really is just massive evolutionary family trees that tell you who descends from whom, how are things related. And so this can tell you, for instance, what are the the closest relatives of the organism that causes an infectious disease? And I think we've become probably all a little more familiar with this because of um, COVID-19, even within a species. So SARS coronavirus 2 is the viral species that causes COVID-19. There is evolution. And we, we now know all about this because we're familiar with the emergence of novel strains. These are sort of new uh, cousins within, the, within this single species. And between species, you know, we're very interested in what is the closest relative of SARS coronavirus 2. Is it uh, probably is a, a virus that causes infection in bats? And that can tell us something already. Um, so the interesting question then is how did it get from bats to, um, to humans? The same is true of every single disease that, that infects us. And very often this tells us, knowing the, the family tree, knowing the evolutionary history, tells us a lot historically. So to take a, a kind of big example, tuberculosis is a respiratory disease caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. And it's, it's one of the big diseases of human history. It's probably, I think it probably has killed more people than, than any infectious disease. It's still a major burden on human health in underdeveloped countries and in India in particular. 
it's still a major threat because uh, increasingly antibiotic resistance and tuberculosis uh, is a problem. And so it's a very interesting disease historically. Um, We want to know as much as we can about it. It's kind of hard to study historically because it's a chronic respiratory disease that can be fairly hard to to understand from written sources. So we're very interested in its evolution. And the, the genome, the DNA, has told us a lot about the bacteria's history that we didn't know um, in the, the last decade. And starting with the fact that we used to think that it derived from closely related bacterium that infects cattle. And we've now known for actually about 20 years that the reverse is true, that we actually gave cattle tuberculosis. Their form of it is derived from us. So it, it's a story that totally flips the, the conventional wisdom on its head. Instead of humans domesticating cattle and getting their disease, in this case, it's, it's actually human societies domesticated cattle and gave them our disease. So then where did it come from? Actually, that's a really weird question. We don't, we don't totally understand where tuberculosis comes from. So that's a mystery we'll someday, I think, will be solved. But we're piecing together the puzzle. So phylogenetics is the the family tree evolutionary history. And that's also how I think they discovered sort of when we started wearing clothing, right? From the split between the head lice and the body lice, right? We can kind of put a date on that. This is uh, the genetics-based evolutionary history of these human ectoparasites. So these are macro parasites, little insects. Uh, I think most primates have, have a, a similar kind of parasite. Humans have two, and it, it does shed light on human evolution, uh, both physiological as well as cultural evolution. So it's a, it's a fascinating little, little story and a reminder that we do have a number of parasites, including macro parasites um, that are a deep part of our own evolutionary past. So the other phylogenetics, family trees is one big way. The other that's pretty revolutionary, very exciting to me as a historian is archaeogenetics or paleogenomics. Um, Those are a mouthful. So in the book, I call them following a phrase used by Johannes Krause, who's one of the pioneers of this field, genetic time travel. It is when archaeologists are able to recover the skeletons uh, of somebody who died in the past and analyze them, usually by sampling from the dental cavity of a victim, you can, if the person was infected with an infectious parasite in the blood at the time they died in sufficient quantities that little pieces of the genetic material of the parasite survives, you can sequence that and identify what diseases the person had uh, at the time they died. So that means what, so you have a problem with fecal oral, right? So fecal oral is not going to get in the blood. Maybe Would that be a harder. No, they, it, it can get in the blood. I mean, if you've got, if you've got cholera, you know, it, it's going to get into to your bloodstream as well. So it, yeah, there's lots of limitations. Um, not all diseases are going to get in the blood. A lot of them won't get to sufficient quantities to be likely to preserve. RNA viruses um, are much more fragile, so we just don't have the, the ability yet to, to easily identify them in archaeological samples. So time travel, to go back to your very original question, probably isn't going to identify every historical pestilence for us, but it's starting to, to answer a lot of questions that we had. People wondered, I mean, very smart, informed historians wondered 
Was the Black Death caused by bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis? Was the plague of Justinian, which is kind of like the first Black Death, was it caused by uh, Yersinia pestis? So people wondered uh, for good reasons. And because of genetic time travel, that question is settled. Um, and so it's, it's exciting for historians to be able to kind of put some questions to rest so that you can then ask the next one. Yeah, I think during the COVID pandemic, I was a bit of a contrarian because I, I read too many of these books on <laughs> the plague. And so I was like, ah, this, this doesn't seem like a big deal in the grand scheme of things. I mean, the, the bubonic plague was really pretty devastating in all of its continual reoccurrences. And um, what was fascinating to me is that humans are kind of like collateral damage, right? For a lot of these diseases, like the plague, they're primarily targeting other creatures, right? Like rats. And there, there are some other uh, diseases that, that are essentially targeting mosquitoes and other kinds of uh, creatures. And, and we're just sort of collateral damage. So how then do these things disappear? I mean, to get back to the question of evolution, there are a couple examples that we know about, for instance, in malaria, where people do have genetically evolved resistance to the disease. But even with yellow fever, I was surprised that that's still up in the air and that part of the reason why Africans were afflicted with yellow fever less than others, uh, you point out some kind of behavioral and environmental things that may have affected the differential impact. So what do we know about and why don't we know more about kind of genetic resistance to, to different pathogens? Well, the, the simple answer is because it's very complicated. The, the genetics of immunity are, are very complicated and it's hard necessarily to know what particular suite of genetic variations may have been uh, adaptive to promote resistance against different diseases in the past. So you, you mentioned the example of malaria. It's kind of the prime example of human evolution under the selective pressure of infectious diseases. And that's telling. So we've known J.B.S. Haldane 80 years ago um, proposed that probably certain human genetic variations were selected for because of the, the evolutionary pressure of malaria. And yet maybe what's revealing about that is how relatively rare still um, it is. And there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one, it's not in this case, the, the so-called malaria hypothesis isn't even really a, an immunity um, gene. It's a red blood cell trait or actually various red blood cell traits that can, can confer some resistance to malaria parasites. Two, it's, malaria is a really unusual disease because it is, when it becomes endemic, one of the really, really bad diseases. So it can confer really, really big evolutionary advantages to having resistance. The malaria is also an interesting case because some of the variations, genetic variants in red blood cell genes that confer partial resistance to malaria are otherwise maladaptive. So they've kind of been easier to pick out whether it's sickle cell trait or um, sometimes just other hemoglobin disorders like beta thalassemia that's fairly common in Mediterranean populations where there used to be a lot of malaria. So these are traits that actually hurt the carrier generally if they're carried in the homozygous state, but they're dangerous to have in a population <laughs> unless uh, there's a lot of malaria around. And these are also kind of one-to-one. -one. There's a trait that has a, an effect. 
Whereas most of the time, the immune system is just this giant orchestra of things that are going on, of signaling and uh, response and, and binding and detection and amplification and downscaling. So the immune system is weird and wild. Um, and it's not just sort of like one genetic variant does one thing. And if you change one little instrument in this orchestra, you don't necessarily know what effect it's going to have. And it'll probably have one effect on one pathogen and another effect on another signaling pathway that might've been helpful, might be changed um, under the pressure of, of exposure to a different pathogen. So it's an interesting question, interesting field, because we can tell there are mathematical signatures in the human immune system that are immune genes have been under a lot of recent selective pressure. So we know that every human population everywhere, one of the main challenges of being a human is surviving infectious disease. And this is constantly, you know, pushed and pulled on the immune system. You can tell from the patterns of variation in human genetics within and between human populations that our immune systems have been constantly just rocked around by infectious disease. But actually, it's much harder to say exactly what what was going on. And there'll be, I think there'll be some progress in this, but there's also going to be limits to what we'll ever know because a lot of these diseases have been largely controlled. And so we're never going to have populations, hopefully, where we're, we're able to see exactly at the level of detail we now have where we can see at the molecular scale what's going on in, in the immune response to a disease with smallpox or something. So um, some of that will always remain mysterious, but it is interesting that this has been one of the really powerful evolutionary pressures on human populations. But again, if you look at us from a natural perspective, from with the perspective informed by animal biology and um, ecology, it's not surprising. Um, it's just that we sometimes forget and think of ourselves as a little more special than we are. Well, I think most people don't realize, most people in the United States and Europe don't realize how recent it was that banished malaria from our shores, right? I mean, you know, large parts of the U.S., large parts of, of Europe. I mean, malaria was an affliction all the way up through the 20th century, right? Yeah. And um, there's different malaria parasites and they cause different diseases that we call malaria. And the, the distinction is important because the, the form of the disease caused by Plasmodium vivax, we call it vivax malaria, is a terrible, terrible disease. But the other major form, Plasmodium falciparum, is beyond terrible. It's just next level. It's, it's, again, one of the two or three worst diseases of human history. And both of these, just to stick with the United States, both of these forms of malaria were once fairly common across much of the United States. And so falciparum malaria was, was far more restricted, but was known in some of the, the subtropical and particularly some of the, the more humid areas of the, the American Southeast. And then vivax malaria was a major disease really across the continental interior, even into the, the interior plains. Um, I'm here in Oklahoma and in the, the very early days, um, the, the history of Oklahoma was a place where in river bottoms and, and wetlands, before there was a ton of drainage clearance, malaria was a very important disease. Well, there's this one story that you tell about how a group of mutineers were essentially given the choice of immediate death or employment with the Royal Africa Company. And and I think you, you mentioned that, you know, a, a bunch of them took the Royal African Company option, but there were a bunch that didn't. <laughs> chose immediate death, right? Yeah, well, they didn't. The, the moral uh, is that 
for the British government. And these are people who are then being put in to work as slavers. Uh, but it was, it was not much different from a, from a death sentence. And we do have a, a sense of the mortality rates of some of these European populations moving to tropical environments in the early modern period. And it really is staggering the, the health risk, the mortality risk uh, of those populations is pretty staggering. It's really remarkable that they were able to find new batches of people to continuously replenish these initial populations. Yeah, greed, ignorance, certainly misinformation, the fate of migrants to like the British Caribbean um, is, is so risky um, that there was, a, there was simply a huge degree of, of simple ignorance and misinformation. But now you talk about how the, the great escape, right? How, you know, for the last, I guess, hundred plus years, I mean, most people in the world, particularly in the West, have, have managed to keep infectious disease under control. And it's, you know, certainly not the kind of scourge that it was in the past. And the percentage of people who die from infectious diseases, or at least known infectious diseases, is, is relatively small compared to the past. And part of this is due to technology and science, but a big part of it is due to kind of the power of the state. So part of it's about kind of rising prosperity and how prosperity and uh, institution building led to improved health. But there's also kind of a feedback loop, right, where improved health leads to improved prosperity. So which is the more powerful uh, causal direction, health towards prosperity or prosperity towards health? Well, it's it's a very tricky question to to ask because the the populations that that we can observe it in it's not easy to tease out the the relative effects because it it's a causal relationship that does run both ways. Let me say this. Well, I mean most of most of the improvements happened before the antibiotics were invented, right? Yeah, I mean antibiotics don't actually play a, a major role in, in the improvement of morbidity and mortality in the pioneering societies, say like the British or the, the Americans. It's because the health has already improved so much by the time antibiotics are minted. Now, antibiotics matter a lot um, in some of the later developing societies. So societies that develop in the mid 20th century, antibiotics are a heck of a nice <laughs> addition to the, to the arsenal. So um, I'm not putting down antibiotics, but I think the historical point is, point is really important is that Human societies are able to bring infectious diseases under control through the deployment of a number of always overlapping mechanisms. And so you need all of it. You need good nutrition. You need economic growth and development that gives particularly children high levels of nutrition to survive infection. You also need good policy. This would include number one, clean water, number two, mandatory vaccination. So those are the, the two real state capacity issues that play a major, major role in bringing infectious diseases under control. It's, there's a lot of evidence, both of these, it's crystal clear. The number one health resource of all is clean water. Um, you know, if you have contaminated water, you're going to have an unhealthy population. And so partly it's developing water treatment plants and facilities, but it's also developing sewage systems that keep waste away from, from drinking water. And then it's vaccination. So none of the improvements in human health would have worked without Jenner and Jennerian vaccination and its imposition as a requirement by public health authorities in the, the 19th and early 20th century. So there's not like one magic bullet that human societies have. It's 
social development, provision of basic welfare, clean water, um, vaccination. And then in the 20th century, it's antibiotics, it's insecticides, um, which have a lot of downsides as well, but actually also have helped control infectious disease vectors like mosquitoes. So it's not a magic bullet. It's sort of a, a web of, of devices that human societies have. And our control is always sort of fragile. It's never, um, never complete. And things are always trying to break through our systems of defense. You know, think of it as a system where there's 10 different fences and um, somebody's always trying to get through and sometimes they'll get through a few of them. COVID-19 is one of the ones that, that got all the way through. It just broke down everything. Um, we didn't have a, obviously a vaccine because it was new and, and managed to break through. So, um, our control is, is always going to be imperfect because of evolution, because things are trying to, to figure out how to get through our defense systems. Well, I think you, you quote somebody by saying that there's no such thing as permanent victory over pathogens. And, um, I mean, do you think that, that we're just experiencing a, a little blip, a, a little moment in, in history, a little brief reprieve against the wave of, of pathogens. I mean, when you look at how many things that we've had to go through and the the speed with which things can travel from one part of the earth to the rest and, and just the sheer attack surface, the human species is it's, it's so vulnerable. Do you think, do you think that we're just experiencing a brief reprieve? Mm. I mean, it's a hard question and I get him and ha because historians are better at the past than, than the future, but you see these, you see these patterns and, I mean, I, I find them very concerning. I expected something like COVID-19 to happen. That's why I started writing the book I'm on the record before COVID-19 saying that, that there's going to be a big one. And so I think that we can infer from the patterns what's probable, but it's it's very tricky to say because our, our tools, our technical capacities are certainly going to continually improve. And so we're going to get better at surveillance. We're going to get better at broad spectrum pharmaceuticals from vaccines, like the holy grail of a universal flu vaccine, um, to better and better therapeutics, like uh, really good viral therapeutics. In fact, COVID-19, in the long run, we're going to, I think historians will look back and be able to take stock of the way that this pandemic actually drove major technical advances. You had like the biggest quantity of human ingenuity uh, focused on this single problem for for a year to to two years, there's never been so much human genius focused on one thing. How do we grapple with COVID nineteen? And so we're going to continue to see unexpectedly some short term, some long term improvements. I mean, I think we're going to see like down the road, obviously mRNA vaccines, which pre existed COVID as a concept and platform, but you're going to see better and better vaccines. You're going to see amazing advances in viral therapeutics, I think. Um, and a lot of it's going to be because of the focus and the funding to, to tackle COVID-19. So the pattern is that our capacity gets better, science moves forward, but nature isn't going to stop. And so in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm pessimistic. One, because I think our social capacity is actually worse than it was before COVID-19. So I actually think we would, if we had a major disruptive new pandemic right now, uh, I think it would actually be harder to control than COVID-19, everything else being equal, because socially our response to COVID-19 was so confused and messed up and, and poorly handled. And there are good reasons for that and bad reasons for that. But I think it's just fair to say we're actually less prepared <laughs> for, a, for a major pandemic than we were 
five years ago, which is ridiculous and completely sad and depressing and scary. So maybe we'll, we'll kind of mature and some of the uh, intensity and, and partisanship around COVID-19 will kind of cool off and people come back up and we can, in a more community-oriented way, get ready for the next pandemic because there will be another one. And so I'm pessimistic about right now whether we have the social capacity to respond effectively because a lot of it isn't just about having the right biomedical tools. I mean, our response to COVID-19, scientifically, the rapidity and effectiveness of the biomedical response almost could not have been better. I mean, the the development of multiple completely effective and almost completely effective and safe vaccines is astonishing. And yet we still screwed it up because of human nature and politics. So I'm pessimistic for that reason. And I'm pessimistic because, you know, if you, if you know the history of infectious diseases, COVID-19 could be so much worse. I mean, there's space for the emergence of infectious diseases that are much trickier, that cause certain kinds of more chronic infection that can be very difficult to control. I think paradoxically, if COVID-19 had affected children, um, the social response to it would have been stronger. I think it's one of the weird things about COVID is that our society was politically willing to, to tolerate an extraordinary amount of sickness and death among old people. I think it's terrible, but if COVID-19, I think, had affected children, <laughs> parents would have been just like totally different and would have said, you're absolutely shutting down the society for a month. And um, the response would have been completely different. So what we don't know is how a society responds to a pandemic because there will be worse pandemics. And so one of the tricky questions is, are we going to have the technical and social capacity to respond to a worse pandemic? How bad could it be? Events that are driven by contagion have a lot of instability um, and a lot of risk associated with them. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic, to be honest. I think we don't know if it'll be in a year or in a hundred years, but I think there'll be a, a much worse and much trickier and much deadlier pandemic at some point in our future. So you asked. In all the books that you mentioned that you're doing something that's very interdisciplinary. I mean, you, you talk about combining biology and um, economics. You talk about combining science and the humanities. And, and I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that, right? And how difficult that is. And then also maybe talk a bit about this interdisciplinary teaching that, that you do. We were mentioning before the podcast started that, that you are involved in this major called Letters at University of Oklahoma, which I thought was fascinating because it brought together so many different disciplines. Well, I mean, yeah, Letters, I was a Letters major as an undergraduate and now get to go back and teach at my alma mater. So I'm a huge uh, booster of of Letters, which is a humanities program uh, and is a particularly interdisciplinary one where we teach history, philosophy, literature, and language. So it just is really grounded in the belief of giving students a well-rounded education. We have some of the smartest students and some of the best graduates. So I, I will uh, restrain myself beyond that, but it is a great interdisciplinary program. And it it is, in some ways, um, probably for me, been an inspiration to try and be interdisciplinary, to interact with people with different kinds of expertise. The really big, interesting questions are, are too big or interesting for one person or even one discipline. And so something like understanding the history of disease, I mean, how how can this not be something that, that requires us to use all the tools at our disposal? And that means both the traditional tools of the humanities to reconstruct what happened to different societies, but also the, the tools of the natural sciences. So whether it's ways of thinking like ecology or whether it's techniques like 
archaeogenetics for getting the the DNA of pathogens, the the greatest possibilities for deepening our understanding of the human past is to bring together those different fields. Of course, it's hard, and I stumble, and anybody else who does um, probably does as well. Uh, but but I also think that people can be very forgiving because um, we all know that that we have our limits, and there's a lot it's a lot more fun to try and think outside the box and work with people who have different expertise. Um, I think it's fun when, for me as a historian, when economists or biologists get interested in the Roman past, I think that's great. And are they going to say something wrong? Are they going to mis- mispronounce a, a Latin word? Um, I hope so, usually, but that's all to the good because they're bringing new insights and fresh perspectives uh, and different tools than, than we might have. So. I think that this kind of interdisciplinary work is what excites me personally, but it's also where the biggest rewards are. Well, I can't think of a, a better book to round out your pandemic than Plagues Upon the Earth. Check it out. It really does go through the entire catalog of nasty bugs that we could have gotten in the past and still can get some of in, in the present. And also the, the fate of Rome, climate disease, and the end of an empire. Thank you so much, Kyle. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great to meet Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.